meaningful narrative about who we are, not just the interaction. Now, this universal human longing is expressed powerfully in the finale of the musical Hamilton, when it asks at the end, when you are born, who remembers your name? Who lives? Who dies? Who tells your story? Now, thankfully, neither we nor Alexander Hamilton are the first one to wrestle with this human longing for lasting work in the face of transient and fragile human nature. Now, way before any of us ever took a step into this world, for centuries long, God's people have brought this yearning to God in prayer in the words of Psalm 90, which ends with these words in verse 17. Establish the work of our hands upon us. In other words, O oh God, make what we do last for eternity. Make our lives count for something. Moses prayed this prayer during that discouraging time of wilderness wandering. God's people collectively prayed this prayer during that time of exile, when they were driven out from all that they knew. They lost everything that great kingdom of David built, and they couldn't show anything to their life. And Jesus, the greater Moses and greater David, although Jesus never, as, as um, Kishan shared, directly quoted the Psalms to life, he always alludes to it, and Psalms are ultimately Psalms of Christ. As he says towards the end of Luke chapter 24, everything that's written in the Psalms and the prophets bear witness about him. And I take it that Jesus must have meditated and prayed this psalm when his ministry seemed like it was going nowhere. When he was disappointed and met by persistent rejection. When his ministry was a shadow of his failure. And we need to pray this prayer. We must learn this prayer as we face our own disappointments, frustrations, setbacks. But to pray this prayer rightly, we must first learn just how dusty and desperate and needy we are, how unworthy and undeserving we are to be established on our own merits. It's only then we'll pray this prayer rightly, asking God to establish a truly worthy work in us through Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, pick it up from verse 1 again. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's wonderful hearing the way that it's put. Did you notice uh, that much of the psalm will focus on our transient nature, yet to understand ourselves truly, we must first look at God. Not inward, but look up to God first. That's only when we'll understand ourselves properly. And the first word of verses 1 and 2 is Lord, and it ends with God. Such a brilliant poem. Starts with Lord, ends with God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Before the mountains were brought forth, God was. Now, how old are the mountains? Geologists reckon the Himalayas and Asia to be around about 50 million years old, and the Alps in Europe. 65 million years old. 
Rockies in America, 80 million years old, and the Barbican Greenstone Belt in South Africa is at least 3.5 billion years old. Even comprehend a million years old. It's hard, isn't it? Before the foundation of the world, before time ever even begun, God has been our dwelling place. God has been our home. That's where we find life. That's where we live, move, have our being. Places we call home now are all temporary, subjected to the changes and chances of this fleeting world. Apparently, a child in a family that moved house many times looked at his mom and said, Mom, you are where home is. And so it is with our God. Now, this affirmation that God is his people's true home is especially suggestive when you think about Moses and the people of Israel at the time. They were in the wilderness with nowhere to go, nowhere to go back. But Moses leading his people, praying this prayer, the Lord is my home. We have a home. It's all the more moving to think about Lord Jesus, the Son of Man who had nowhere to lay his head, as Matthew chapter 8, verse 20 calls, praying in the quietness of early hour, away from the crowds. Perhaps Jesus prayed, Father, you are my dwelling place. Even if my closest companion leaves me, even if my mothers and my own brothers reject me, even if my own people try to crucify me, I know you are with me. should pray this prayer in our pilgrimage as we face disappointments and setbacks in our lives, remembering that our ultimate home is with Christ in heaven. You know, we become restless and discontent in life when we make the mistake of thinking that this world is our home. Now, owning a home is a great Australian dream, isn't it? Um, I have so much time in my hands. Massive document produced by West Peckholt, a place to call home. It's like 35 pages long document. And according to the research, apparently 85% of Australians believe that owning a home is the greatest measure of success and achievement and the biggest factor for happiness, stability, and emotional well being. And the same study goes on to suggest despite the difficulties of owning a home, people are willing to do whatever it takes to make them. In other words, it is the great Australian dream. It's the evidence that your work is established. You have a home? Finally, I've got something to show for my life. I have done something worthwhile. But home on this earth is fleeting and momentary, isn't it? Research suggests that satisfaction one derives from owning a home lasts on average about five years. That great Australian home takes probably about your whole life to get it, and you get satisfaction for about five years. And after that, it doesn't really make too much difference how you feel about your life. And well, your home that people just demolish to build a new home was probably not too long ago a new home promising security and satisfaction to another people who are just there trying to do it. The psalmist gives a reality check in verse 3 
even if you secure the most glorious home here, without God your time is numbered. It says, you return men to dust and say, return, O children of men. But dust is a disintegrating matter, isn't it? It comes about through decomposition. Dust in a home tells us that our cells have died recently. Dust in a building site means that a building has been knocked down and destroyed. Dust covers the abandoned city in apocalyptic movies. Dust evokes decay, decomposition, and death. So part of what it means to be dust people is that we will all one day be dead people. When God declared in perfect justice that we would return to dust in Genesis 3.19, he established that human existence will always be lived under the shadow of death. But we, who in our integrated being, who can talk to one another, who hug one another, love, cry, laugh, work, will all one day be disintegrated, decomposed, cell by cell, atom by atom, decay, replaced by dust. In a world where people are pursuing the elixir of life as enthusiastically as ever in the form of cryogenics, transhumanism, genome editing, uh, Silicon Valley's Aubrey the Great thinks it's reasonable to suppose that one could oscillate between by a living biologically 20 to 25 indefinitely. That's his great life's ambition and project. But to every death-defying fad, God makes clear the certainty of death upon humanity. All who try to build the lasting home in this world and in this body will be disappointed and will be decomposed. In verses 46, the psalmist continues to contrast the eternal God and the dusty man in view of time. It says, For a thousand years in your sight above yet yesterday when it is past, we are like a dream. Here today and gone tomorrow, like grass that flourishes in the morning, but fades and withers away in the evening. Now, I don't know whether you think you have a lot of time left in your life, or not much time left in your life. But the younger you are, the harder it is to feel the brevity of life, isn't it? When you are young, it's impossible not to feel that how you feel about life, your so-called invincibility, will just go on forever. When you are young, if anything, the future promises to give more gain, not less. Life feels like an ever-growing savings account. With each passing year, even more ambitious New Year's resolution, you're adding new assets. The number of digits in your savings account, bank account increases. You're expanding your mind through education, acquiring new skills, making connections all over the world. It feels like you will just go on adding, winning, enjoying. But the truth is, life is actually a debit account that you are fast approaching to its limit. You are spending down, never saving up. Everything you have, your healthy body, your fast possessing mind, your good-looking face, your possessions, you know, even your relationships, all on borrowed time until one day your life passes away in a short period of time. 
there's probably no one sitting here who are a bit more advanced in age thinking, where have I been this whole time? Inside every old man is a young man, young woman, wondering, well, how did I miss my destiny? Now, we must face our frailty and mortality and our terrible transience if we are going to gain wisdom the psalmist speaks about later in verse 12. Because if only when we learn how dusty and desperately needy we are, we will lean on eternal help, our forever dwelling place. But before we get there, in verse 7 to 11, the psalmist elaborates more on what he hinted earlier in verse 12. The reason why our life is fleeting is because of God's righteous anger and wrath against our iniquities and our secrets. Look at verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sun. This is a very sober reality. It's a confronting, isn't it? We live for days, the psalmist says, every day is marked. Live under the shadow of death. And in the end, we finish our lives with a sigh, with a moan, with a groan. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span, or rather, I think the better translation is, uh, yet even the best part of our life is toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. That's cruel, isn't it? Our life is short, and even the best part is always accompanied with toil and shadow. Now, if that sounds too abstract, think of something you really want to achieve in life. If you had this, you would be able to say, I'm happy about my life right now. Think about something. Maybe it's something you've been working towards for years. Uh, for young, younger people, it may be graduating with honors degree or university medal, or a job offer from prestigious law firm, or launching a business under your own name. Or maybe it's simply about finding a compatible spouse and having uh, obedient children, if that's possible, and, and, and settling down. Think of whatever you want for your life, that uh, on the day you achieve it, you can confidently say, that's the best day of my life. Think of something. Now, uh, imagine one day you get what you've wanted to get in life. There's immediate relief, excitement. You pass on the good news to people who matter to you, your family and friends. You make plans to celebrate with them. But later that same day, you have a follow-up appointment with your doctor to receive some test results. You went in a week earlier, complaining about back pain and persistent headaches. Nothing terribly unusual, just uncomfortable. But now your doctor says he has bad news. Stage four, inoperable, terminal. But imagine that on the same day, on a single day, you learn that you have achieved everything you are looking for in life. And also you have only six months to live. Which news do you think will define your life? Now, this is not just a fictional scenario. This is the story of a surgeon named Paul Kalanithi. 
Uh, he tells his own story beautifully in his memoir called When Breath Becomes Air, published in 2015, shortly after he died of his cancer. Uh, Colin Neathy was one of the most driven, capable, bright young neurosurgeon coming into the world. Uh, he was finishing two decades of grueling medical training at some of the most world's finest institutions. He is from undergrad uh, to his medical training at the University of his Ventura, like Yale, Harvard, Stanford, Cambridge. Uh, he writes, I had earned the respect of my seniors, won prestigious awards, fielded jobs from every renowned university around the country and beyond. At age 36, I had climbed the mountain top. I could see the promised land from Gilead to Jericho. I could finally see myself as a husband I promised to be. Everything he had worked so hard in life was nearly within his reach when he learned that he had an advanced and vicious form of cancer and died at the age of 37 years old. But even the best of our days are filled with toil and trial, isn't it? Even the best of us end not with a shout, but with a sigh. Even our best day, possibly your uh, wedding day, but even in your wedding ceremony, did you notice? When you exchange and make promise and vow, you say, until death do us apart. Even the marriage date is shattered by death. This is true even for Christians, insofar as our bodily existence is concerned. It's true that we have forgiveness in Christ, and as we read from 1 Peter 1, uh, we have a certain hope of resurrection. But we still wait for the redemption of our bodies. Our present bodies are subjected to decay and death. Though we Christians do not fear death per se, the process of dying is no less painful or tragic or toilsome and troublesome for Christians. Now we were reminded of this sober reality in our dear brother John's death the past year, past year. It's true that we do not grieve without hope, as Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. But it is also true that we bear not to hope without grieving. Uh, I was uh, uh, once gently rebuked by a, a, a dear friend and Christian friend's funeral because I cried so much. I'm very emotional. Why am I cry so much? And my friend was gently rebuking me. You know, you're a Christian minister and you're not setting a good example. You should not be grieving without hope. And I think there's some truth to that. I'm a bit too emotional at funerals. But I think it's equally true that we Christians are sometimes tempted to bypass grieving because we cannot deal with death. So we go too quickly to hope. We ought not to grieve without hope, but we ought not to hope without grieving. We ought to grieve with hope, with fears of now, the confronting process of dying and cruelty of death ought to cause everyone to consider this one thing. Uh, if death doesn't teach you this, you'll never be wise. The psalmist says, death ought to teach us how serious sin is, how terrifying God's wrath is, and how seriously God hates our sin and rebellion against him. 
God's message to the world, foreshadowing what is to come if your sin is not going to And what is to come can be even more terrifying. But who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you, says the psalmist in verse 11. And isn't that very true? People don't want to hear about death, all the more about sin, even more about hell and God's judgment against it. But it's only when you understand how terrifying God's wrath is, how fleeting you are before God's wrath, you will get a heart of faith. And you will learn to live rightly and humbly in the fear of God. Only when you learn that you have nowhere else to go except to your eternal dwelling place, God and His house. It's only then you will find an answer to this terrifying and confronting reality of sin and death. And that's what we see in the remainder of today's psalm. The psalmist turns to the Lord in verse 13, but look very carefully. Did you notice in verse 13 the Lord is capital Lord? It's the personal name of God. Why? Because only God understands our dusty nature and provides a remedy for it. Now, in another psalm which speaks of our dusty nature, the psalmist says these words in Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord, Yahweh, Israel's God, shows compassion to those who fear him. You know what? He says, the psalmist in verse 14, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So knowing that we come from dust, that we are merely made out of dusty matter, draws God's heart towards us in compassion. For whatever reason, the eternal and everlasting God who dwells in unapproachable light, who knows all our burial secret sins, draw near to us in fatherly compassion and tenderness. That's amazing to me. Why? Because he is a faithful God who keeps his promises to his people. That's why the Lord there is written with capital letters, Yahweh, the God of Israel. God who revealed to Jacob, God who promised to Israel that he will never leave them or forsake them. And we see the same in today's psalm, in verse 13. The psalmist cries out, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servant. The psalm uses God's covenant name. The psalmist is saying, Remember the promises you made to your people, God. We are not simply sinners, but we are your servants whom you have chosen for yourself. I know you are Lord who shows compassion to his children like a father. I know you are God who, knowing our weaknesses and our dusty frame, will draw near to us. So the psalmist of prayer grows with confidence in verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. A steadfast love is not simply asking God to be nice to us, but it's calling on God to fulfill His promise in our life. The promise He made to Adam and Eve that one day an offspring of Eve will crush Satan's head. The promise He made to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. The promise He made to David to establish God's kingdom forever. 
these promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ our Lord. So when Moses first prayed this prayer, he was leading God's people to pray for the coming of Christ, to fulfill the covenant promise and to bring life to people under the shadow of death. Now, when we pray, we look back at what Christ has done, and now we ask God to consummate his kingdom through the return of Jesus Christ. In verses 15 to 16, Moses prays with confidence all the more that the gladness will come in the future is a joy that will more than cancel out all our grief and sorrows and miseries of living in a world under sin. Now, at present, we still live in, a, in this body of death. Even our best days are filled with toil and trouble. But when Christ comes, the sufferings of this present life will not be worth comparing to the glory that is to come. The gracious deeds of God will be shown in wonder and majesty to all the families of the earth. So the psalm, which has taken us to the eternal God and to the depth of our fragility and transient nature, now ends with an assured faith and confidence in verse 17. Look at verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Jesus prayed this prayer for us. When his ministry was met by persistent rejection and opposition, visibly, when he had no achievement to show up, show for in his life, he prayed this prayer and he was obedient to God even unto death. And because of this perfect fear of God, there was one man who considered God's wrath against sin. There was one man who feared God and loved God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength. And he went to the cross, praying to God, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And because of his prayer, God answered his plea to establish his kingdom. God heard Jesus pray and established his work by raising him from the dead. What Jesus has accomplished, therefore, will never be subject to death. Gates of hell shall not prevail against the church that he is building. Isaiah's prophecy that one day Jesus will see the fruit of his suffering and be satisfied is glorious, will gloriously be fulfilled as he sees all the families of the earth with their sins paid for by his finished work coming into the new heavens and new earth with glorious resurrection bodies. And our dear brother John will be there also. He will not be forgotten because Jesus prayed this prayer for us and God answered that prayer and given us evidence for it by raising him from the dead. Now, because Jesus' work will be established, we can now also pray this psalm through him. But it should be clear by now, when we pray to God to establish our work, for our life's work to be counted, we're not praying for our personal success, are we? Our individual legacy. No, we are 
su bendita presencia. Please come down now. Please church be here for us. We pray the will of the Lord be established in and through us as we give our sleeping life to our eternal Savior. Now when we pray that prayer and give our lives to the work of the Lord, God answers your prayer. God promises that your work will be counted for eternity. Your work will be gloriously revealed when Christ our Savior returns. Christian life is slow going at times, isn't it? You know, you pour your life in Christian discipleship to someone, and they don't respond very much. Your labor seems disappointing. Uh, your ministry, uh, whether it be at home, with your children, I find that when it discourages, it seems very unfruitful. Ministry with your children, they never seem to get it. Or whether it be your personal ministry in church. They seem indifferent at times. They seem subjected to betrayal. But the promise of Psalm 90 is that all who persevere in patient and obedient Christian discipleship can pray and will achieve something enjoyable. As we trust and rest in God, our dwelling place, not putting our hopes in fleeting world, but pouring ourselves in His service, bearing one another's sins, being patient, serving one another's needs, forgiving one another, speaking the truth in love to one another, year in and year out, rebuking one another, loving one another. As we do that, God says, Your work will be the question, when you are gone, who will remember your name? Who lives? Who tells your story? Is that God eternally will remember your name. But only through and in and through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. All our work done in his name will never be in vain. How about we pray in the words of Psalm 90? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, forever you have formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are our God. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, Lord, establish the work of our hands. We ask for our Savior, Jesus Christ.